there are so many things that I did not learn about. I mean, there's a lot I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known about... I wish they'd kind of spoken more about the emotional side of things because it was always taught very pragmatically, like, this is how not to get pregnant, this is how not to get an STD. But it was never like, this is how it might impact you mentally or emotionally. I wish I'd known that it was okay and totally, totally normal to be queer. And that actually doesn't matter if you don't have a label for it. It doesn't matter. Just trust how you feel. How you feel is okay. I think I wish I'd realised that there were so many firsts that I might have. There are so many possibilities. There are so many options. And there's so much time to explore things. And that it doesn't have to be scary. And that having knowledge can help to make you feel more comfortable and more at ease. And take a lot of the fear out of a lot of the really scary conversations or experiences that we think we might have. I think I just wish there had been less pressure. What do you wish you'd known from your sex education growing up? This is a question I've asked a lot of people over the past few months. Everyone, of course, had different answers informed by their individual experiences. But there was one particularly glaring, unifying theme, a common thread that can be summarized in one word, more. I wish I'd known, I wish I'd been taught, more. My response also falls into this bracket. In primary school, I have hazy memories of a special one-off day where we were taught about sex ed. I remember being separated from the boys in my year. I remember one of my teachers dunking a tampon in water to show us how they expand. I remember watching quite a graphic video of someone giving birth. I remember labeling a diagram of a cervix. From primary or secondary school, I have no recollection of learning about consent of being taught about LGBTQ identities, of learning about sex in a way that emphasised how to make the experience enjoyable instead of focusing on risk mitigation. I never had a lesson as extreme as that scene in Mean Girls. You know, don't have sex because you'll get pregnant and die. But equally, my mind draws a blank when I try to conjure a memory of a sex ed class I received which had a truly positive impact on me. I'm 25 now, and as an adult, I feel like on a weekly basis, I learn something new about my body, about sex, about identity. And I wonder, how would my relationship with myself and the experiences I've had with other people be different if I'd received an inclusive, comprehensive sex education growing up? To understand the context for this, we need to go back a few years. In 2017, Justine Greening, the then Education Secretary, was involved in developing Section 34 of the Children and Social Work Act. Coming into legal effect in 2020, the Act made it compulsory for Relationships and Sex Education, or RSE, to be taught in all UK schools. Although as sex education is different in each country, I'm going to be talking specifically about England, because that's where my own experience of sex education came from. Prior to 2020, sex education guidelines hadn't been updated since the year 2000. That curriculum was created under Section 28, which was Margaret Thatcher's policy, which prevented schools and teachers from talking about homosexuality and had a very, very long hangover. Sex educator and author Millie Evans touches on the importance of this two-decade gap. So the old curriculum was created at a time when we weren't really allowed to talk about LGBTQ plus issues. It came in when we certainly didn't have social media in its current form. Most people didn't have mobile phones. 
most people didn't have particularly easy access to the internet a lot of the time. It was at a completely different time in terms of media, in terms of the kinds of challenges that we were facing. The result? Generations of students, myself included, who received a sex education informed by outdated, narrow-minded ideals. Not only was the content of this education likely out of sync with the reality of the online and outside world we were engaging with, so was the way it was framed. Sex education curriculums around the globe, not only in England, have always, almost always, suffered from this overemphasis on harm mitigation and underemphasis on personal autonomy and power and what power looks like, what self-control looks like, what pleasure and equitable scenarios in and outside the bedroom look like. Sophia Smith-Gaylor is a journalist and the author of Losing It, a book about the sex misinformation crisis and how we can improve information and education access around sexual health. Traditionally in England, we've certainly once had very moralistic sex education well in the past. We then had, under the Blair government, a sort of massive emphasis on countering teenage pregnancy. And then now we see a lot of schools really upping the ante and talking about consent. That as a premise is very good. As a premise, ensuring young people know about barrier methods to prevent STI spread and pregnancy, we need that. That always has to be a part of sex ed. No one is saying it doesn't. The issue is that becomes a lot of people's main memory of their sex education. What Sophia's saying here is certainly true of my experience. And I found that when I chat to people of a similar age about the sex ed classes they did or didn't receive, it can often turn into an exchange of anecdotes. Like this. We had to do a relay race, so they lined up cucumbers at the end of the classroom and we kind of had to run, shove a condom on one and then run back. And while we were doing that, the teachers would be ripping them off so the next person could shove it on. And it just kind of made everything feel so ridiculous and almost funny. Truth be told, I never listened uh, to sex education classes at school. I was a teenage boy and I was far too cool for it. And um, when push came to shove, uh, to be honest, my full sex education came in the form of my older brother throwing a box of condoms at me, saying, use them wisely. And uh, that was about it. These are obviously quite silly examples, but they help to paint a picture. You may have been taught about male erections, for example, or how to roll a condom down a banana. But what were you taught about the female anatomy and erectile tissue? Did you have a sex ed class where the sole focus wasn't the mechanics and risks of penetrative sex? Was the word pleasure even mentioned? That last question is particularly important. I'm thinking as well of a massive analysis of sexual health interventions that was analysed and research was published on this in 2022. So it's really recent research. It found that sexual health interventions, which heavily incorporated pleasure as a concept as part of it, were more likely to lead to positive health outcomes. People were more likely to wear condoms, for example. So incorporating pleasure, incorporating what good sex looks like and not just bad sex or some of the risk factors associated with sex does help us be safer. 
And if you have a moralistic worldview where you have ideas around sex, which you might personally describe as conservative rather than liberal, it's really worth bearing in mind that it's very likely that that worldview is going to affect your attitudes towards what should and shouldn't be taught. Should you be going on your worldview or should you be going on the evidence base? I would argue you need to go on the evidence base. And I should highlight that sometimes there are elements of evidence bases that are found in science that are really uncomfortable for me. You know, there are some things that have been found that that it's a shame to learn that they're true, but they are. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend they don't exist. I'm not going to sit here and ever deny or counter them if they're raised to me in an interview because they do exist and that's the evidence base. But we cannot base any of this on opinion or worldview. It's got to be based on what the science says. Now, the fact that RSE became compulsory in 2020 was undoubtedly a massive leap in the right direction, despite the fact we're comparing this to a relatively low benchmark. The 2020 guidelines outlined what core content should be delivered in primary and secondary schools. To give education providers flexibility, they didn't explicitly state what specific content should be delivered by each year or key stage. Instead, they laid out the general themes kids and teenagers should know about by the time they leave school. These included topics like respectful relationships, media and online relationships, being safe, families, and for secondary schools, intimate and sexual relationships, including sexual health. However, due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was only really from 2021 that schools began being held accountable for delivering this newly obligatory RSE curriculum. And the road from policy to implementation has faced a few obstacles. The first being funding. When you listen or speak to teachers, They, time and time again, ask for more resources and more funding for training, to feel confident and empowered to deliver relationships and sex education. Sadly, it's easy to see how, with underfunding and stretched resources, a subject like RSE, which isn't examined on, can fall down the list of priorities. Especially when it's such a vast subject that is constantly being adapted to be age-appropriate and timely. It's also important to note that any decline in funding reinforces inequitable access to sex education between state and private schools. As a senior reporter at Vice News, I did a Freedom of Information investigation where I learned that the amount of funding that was going to be given to teachers to train them to deliver the new curriculum was actually halved, sort of secretively halved. No one ever announced that half the funding had been taken away from it. Originally, six million was promised. Charities at the time said we need 60 million, actually, if we want to train all the teachers who deliver sex ed. In this new curriculum, the government said, here's six million. And then it was over the pandemic as this training that was being rolled out that it mysteriously became 3.2 million. And they told me that the money had been diverted to other departmental priorities for the Department of Education. And they actually blamed teacher uptake. Teacher uptake due to the pandemic meant that Understandably, fewer teachers had the time or resources to be able to get this training. And one wonders why the amount of time perhaps was not extended, why the funding was not extended. With so many subject areas, there's had to be an element of catch-up played. Why did this not happen with sex ed? Why is this not being discussed in the ongoing review of sex education that's now happening that Rishi Sunak instigated? It's something mysteriously missing from the conversation. The conversation Sophia's referring to here is about the 2023 RSE review. This year, new stories circulating around the topic of RSE, at least from a lot of mainstream media outlets, have mostly amplified the voices of individuals and groups 
calling for sex ed to be toned down. The noise around this was particularly loud in March 2023, when Miriam Cates, Conservative MP for Penistone and Stocksbridge, stood up in Parliament, thanked the Speaker of the House of Commons, and directed this statement to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Graphic lessons on oral sex, how to choke your partner safely, and 72 genders. This is what passes for relationships and sex education in British schools. In response to what Cates referred to as a catastrophe for childhood, Sunak announced that the review examining statutory RSE guidelines, the one which was meant to take place this year anyway, would be brought forward. To quote the government website, this was a necessary response to disturbing reports that inappropriate material is being taught in some schools. This denouncement of how RSE is being taught in UK schools unsurprisingly created headlines, the majority of which perpetuated inflammatory remarks about all of the alleged radical sex ed classes being taught by unregulated organisations. This framing of the RSE review has received a lot of attention. But who does this benefit? And crucially, who does it harm? As we've heard, the timely aspect of sex ed is essential. To provide information to young people before they encounter harmful content and offer them a space where they feel confident and safe to voice questions is paramount. That's why the number of external organisations who come into schools to deliver sex education has increased. To help plug the existing knowledge and funding gap and support teachers so young people can receive the best quality RSE possible. So I'm Dolly from School of Sexuality Education. Um, we're a charity that provides comprehensive and inclusive relationships and sex education programmes throughout the country. So we work predominantly in secondary schools. We also work in primary schools, colleges and universities as well. External providers like us, we have specialists within the team. So we have sexual violence prevention specialists. We have doctors, teachers, youth workers, people who have backgrounds in psychology. We spend and dedicate all of our time in this one massive area to make sure that we are up to date. We are ever based we are responding to young people today and their needs and that's how we're able to support schools so when you say you structure your programs with an evidence-based approach what does that mean and how do you adapt your content for different ages our work really is all about understanding where young people are at and responding to that you know whether it's related to digital literacy or consent sexual violence prevention or contraception, sexual health. It's about responding to what they need now. And so, you know, our work, our programmes are based on the government guidance and respond to that government guidance in this kind of spiral curriculum so that what we're doing is we're kind of laying the foundation and then building on that each year. For example, with year sevens and year eights, when you talk about consent, we're not talking about sexual intimacy. You know, we're talking, we're laying the foundation about all consent that actually, you know, if um, our kind of body is ours or, and our, that includes other spaces like our online spaces, our stuff like our phone and our pencil case and things like that, that all belongs to us. We have so many different boundaries and they have to be respected by absolutely everyone in our lives. And we're, what we're doing is we're at that stage really just validating that they matter and that they should trust their feelings um, and speak to someone if they ever, ever feel uncomfortable because it is never, ever their fault. And then when they get to sort of year nine, year 10, we can start to build on that foundation and talk about sexual intimacy. So this is what I mean that, you know, 
we're responding to what young people need at that age. And that means looking at the evidence around social development, child development, but also listening to young people, you know. If year sevens and year eights are saying that they want to learn about something, if they're asking questions, we need to respond to that because otherwise they're going to get that information from elsewhere, which isn't reliable and is actually really harmful. In politicising the debate around sex education, there is a fear that the young people who will be most affected by the review are being deprioritised and decentered by a political agenda. Every single person that I've spoken to wants the review to happen. If anything, they want it to happen more regularly, and with allusions to evidence bases as much as possible. They also want young people to have a voice on what should be taught in RSE. All of these topics are evolving all the time, so it's essential to review it and keep, keep it up to date and keep it refreshed and keep talking to young people to understand all of that. There are also amazing resources on the internet that provide safe spaces for people to seek out information on topics that they might not feel comfortable talking to a caregiver or teacher about. Lucy Whitehouse is the founder of Fumble, a youth charity that co-creates an online space with young people where they can ask questions about topics in the realm of sex education and mental health. Obviously, School Taught Sex Ed can help give young people the tools they need to navigate the topics we've talked about. But how much of their understanding of healthy relationships or sexual health comes or can come from school? Giving young people the tools to be discerning in this space is exactly what we're trying to do. And also, yeah, I mean, I don't know, we can't really quantify it. How much of their understanding of healthy relationships, sexual health and mental health do young people get in schools? Can they ever get from school? because they're always going to be surrounded by this sort of ecosystem of influences from their parents, if they're a faith group, from their faith, if they are like in sports teams, from their sports teams, from their peers, from media, from social media. There's this whole ecosystem of influences happening around young people. School is one part of that ecosystem. So putting all of this incredible weight on what sex ed will young people get in schools is kind of missing the much bigger picture of what young people need support with. And so that's, again, why Fumble exists to support them in, an, in other areas of this ecosystem. And that's what's exciting about school sex ed is what, how you framed it, giving young people the tools. That's where schools could be really brilliant part of this ecosystem rather than like nitpicking over, oh, are we allowed to talk to them about this at this age? It's more about giving them that sort of media literacy and critical discernment to be able to exist in the rest of the ecosystem to develop healthy understandings of intimacy and relationships and identity. This critical discernment is fundamental when there's so much disinformation around sex education. And the nature of social media algorithms means toxic influences, misogynistic content and hate speech are easily accessible and widely circulated online. Women don't even know what men find attractive. All the different things that you could attribute to toxic masculinity, most of it's positive. The more you invest, the lower their attraction. Until you sleep with her, she has the power. Single mother like households are the reason why we have such a degenerative society. One topic every person I spoke to mentioned was how exposure to pornography from a young age is becoming an increasingly prevalent social issue. Dignify is a charity that researches sexual abuse. In a 2023 school study, they spoke to 4,000 children in Hertfordshire 
that were between the ages of 14 and 18, and found that 22% of students had viewed porn on multiple occasions. Of those, one in five said they had a porn habit, and one in 10 said they felt addicted. Another study, led by Common Sense Media, a non-profit child advocacy organisation, found that the average age kids are first exposed to porn is 12 years old. There's definitely an anti-RSE, let kids be kids argument, perpetuated by people who are worried about what their kids are being taught in schools. But I wonder, with the world as it is, and with the current climate we're living in, especially in relation to the internet and how it is now, how much can that argument really stand? Well, you've just highlighted one of the most popular pieces of misinformation. At this point, it's disinformation because it's been widely debunked and people are still spreading it about sex education and what good quality, comprehensive sex education does for a young person. You'll find that there is an argument that is sometimes it's promoted by parents who think they know best but are not going on the evidence base or it is promoted by people with an agenda who probably know it's wrong, but they want to win hearts and minds with a powerful, compelling argument. They say things like, oh, sex ed is going to sexualize my child. Let them be a child, as, as you just described. We know from extensive research, some of this has been funded by Congress. You know, it's massive amounts of research that we have now and well over 20 years that we can look at that shows us that good quality, comprehensive sex education is going to protect a young person. It's going to delay sexual initiation. So it's going to delay them having sex for the first time till they feel ready. However, you know, sex looks like to them and their, and their identity and their sexuality, etc. Uh, we also know that comprehensive sex education arms young people with the ability to report abuse if they you know, very tragically experience it. So it protects you from innumerable harms and it helps you not rush into things. So we really need to hear that a lot more. And instead, sadly, we hear this mis- and disinformation that it sexualizes children, which is completely false. I've experienced some of the challenges that come with growing up alongside social media. But in the past decade, internet access and usage has evolved so much. Even I feel like there's a huge gap in my understanding of young people's relationship with the online world as it is now. That's why it's a key concern for sex educators to make school a place where young people can think critically and engage in a healthy way. I, as a 23-year-old, have equal access to the internet as a 12-year-old who is online. I have equal access to a 50-year-old who's online. We all have equal access to the same information. And sure, we're going to access it in different ways and we're going to be looking for different things. But it's kind of democratised access to information in a way that is both really helpful because it means we have access to information we, in the past, would have just been completely closed off to us. But also, obviously, it's giving us access to information that is really harmful and unhelpful. I always think when parents are scared about sex education, and I think it is a completely understandable fear, but I would just ask them, would you rather that your young person learned from a trained, respected adult or from their peers? Because young people are having these conversations all the time. Young people are having conversations about sex, about their bodies, about relationships from a very, very early age. It's not like they just turn 16 and suddenly this like switch comes on and they're suddenly interested in sex and relationships. That's just not true. And there were so many rumours and stories and myths that I heard bandied around classrooms when I was a teenager that were just never corrected. I almost had to correct them myself because I had this knowledge that everyone else didn't have access to. Like I kind of became Otis from sex education in my school and just having to correct really, really basic but also really harmful ideas 
Because those conversations were happening. They were just happening behind the scenes. It's not like not having sex education stopped us from talking about it. It just meant that we were talking about it in a more harmful, less guided, less supported way. Sex education is a powerful preventative tool. And as Lucy from Fumble talked about, with such an ecosystem of influences feeding into how young people see and engage with the world, talking about issues like consent and gender dynamics from an early age is paramount to protecting young people. And this is certainly true when it comes to doing everything possible to prevent sexual violence against women and girls. If young people understand historically why men and women have certain gender roles, if they learn about exploitation, why women have been vilified for being sexual, about constructed ideals of masculinity, or healthy relationships and boundaries, this gives them the vocabulary, the understanding and the critical thinking skills to be able to deconstruct any content they engage with that might perpetuate those stereotypes, rather than subconsciously taking this content in. When kids as young as 12 are able to access porn, it's important that the basics of this history and these stereotypes are taught from an early age. Something to keep in mind when seeing inflammatory discourse about age-appropriate sex ed. The scale of sexual violence in UK schools was exposed by the Everyone's Invited campaign in 2021. And this was followed by Ofsted's review into sexual harassment and sexual violence in UK schools, which found that sexual harassment occurs so frequently, it's become, quote, commonplace. Hi, I'm Annabelle. I'm 15 years old. I turned 16 in like a week. I go to an all-girls school in England. Annabelle and her peers deal with misogyny and harassment on a regular basis. Being contacted by strangers on Snapchat and being asked for nude pictures is just one example of how commonplace this all is. You'll get added by someone. You'll like say hi. They'll say, hi, how old are you? And then it will be like, I'm a male, 16, something like that. And then the next question will be like, do you send? And then you'll say that, no. And then you'll be blocked and that's it. And that's the interaction? Yeah, basically. What would you say is the usual response around girls your age, like amongst you and your friends? None of us really like it. Um, I mean, I don't know how far they're going to get with that line of messages every single time but I don't think it works um a lot of people just don't interact and just don't talk to people online at all which I think is probably the better option but it's just kind of sad that like we have to do that because it shouldn't really be happening anyway yeah and how does it make you feel receiving those kind of messages at first I I was like horrified but it happens so often now I'm just kind of numb to it like For any 16-year-old to be desensitised to harassment is alarming. But sadly, while this harassment has taken on a different form, it's by no means surprising or new. I just want to feel angry. Like, there's, there's like, nothing anyone can do to stop it. And these, like, role models like Andrew takes, there are others as well. Like, they just keep getting away with this and everyone thinks it's okay and there's literally nothing we can do to stop it. It's like we're going back in time. Like we we're trying to progress. We're just we're just going back. Like we're not going to get anywhere if this keeps happening. Annabelle also saw differences in the language her brothers have been using. Subtle misogynistic comments that make her worry about what they're being exposed to on the internet. Her brothers are 8 and 11. My name is Matilda. My pronouns are she/her. And I am co-founder and director of Split Banana, 
we're an organization that designs and delivers inclusive, relevant relationship and sex education in schools and in other spaces as well. So like youth spaces, community spaces. And we run workshops for young people, but we also train educators and support schools and other organisations to make their RSE provision more inclusive. External organisations like Split Banana have seen an increase in the number of teachers reporting the use of misogynistic language being used by students. This can definitely be linked to the content of sexist influences going viral, but it's also the byproduct of a historic endemic misogyny in mass media. You know, I've seen it through the teacher's perspective, but I've also seen it through young people's questions and the things that we get asked. One of the biggest questions that we get asked in our sessions is what happens if a girl lies about being sexually assaulted? And you can totally see how that is directly influenced by the misreporting of sexual assault in the media. And we see it so often in headlines, how the media report on things like sexual assault um, report on things like you know murders of women and you know there's so much victim blaming that goes on and like the rhetoric around it is horrendous so I think it's not only the kind of darker corners of the internet and the algorithms which are spreading misogyny it is our very own media who use this kinds of language that you know people don't bear the consequences of so I feel like it's everywhere at the moment and it obviously always has been everywhere it's not like misogyny came out of nowhere I just I don't think it ever went away I just think it is being called out more now people have the language to recognize it more and also yeah the internet and and the media has exacerbated it I think in recent years again that's where sex ed in schools can help unpacking the history and current climate of misogyny with young boys and girls can be done in an empathetic productive way we got to recognise as well that there's like a genuine anxiety behind these questions. And often young men don't actually, they don't have the tools to process whether something is misinformation or not. And it just really taps into their feelings of like, you know, whether that's to do with powerlessness, whether that's to do with, yeah, just, just general fear, I guess, and like not understanding. So I think it's really essential that we're considering how they might be feeling in that situation too. I asked Annabelle about her experience of sex ed. And while she said there were many positive aspects to the way it's taught, she also expressed frustration. She's currently studying GCSEs and won't receive any sex education once she moves into sixth form. When I was in primary school, I was in a mixed school and I, I just remember they did separate us a lot. Like during the sex education lessons, they'd put the boys in one room, the girls in another room. I think it would be more useful if we were all together and we all learnt about the same things. So it just feels a bit more like we're on the same level and not two separate creatures or whatever. I don't know. And we only have PSHE lessons every other week and I, I feel like they should be more frequent because I don't think the school really takes it seriously. Like when there's an event going on, they're like, oh, you can just do it during your PSHE lesson. Like How it gets taught needs to be looked at a bit more, but I wouldn't say they're doing the wrong things right now. They're doing the right things, they just need to do a bit more of it. Annabelle's point about doing more is really telling. In a lot of the discussion around sex education, there seems to be a focus on division between the government and teachers or sex educators, between the wants of students and parents, between parents with different opinions on what sex education should look like. But organisations like the ones I've spoken to, 
all want collaboration with parents and the government. If we do look at sex education as being this ecosystem of influences, there's an argument that not working together and exacerbating these divisions only furthers inequitable access to sex ed and leaves young people vulnerable. This anxiety that's being whipped up by the media and by certain MPs around this for parents, that anxiety wouldn't necessarily exist if we were supporting them and bringing them into the conversation in a really collaborative way. So we've been really keen, obviously, to bring young people into the conversation and our co-creation in, in that collaborative way. And now we're really keen to bring parents in because I think once everybody's buying into it in the same equal way and part of that conversation and understanding where it's coming from, there won't be this anxiety because we know that it's the right thing to do. We know it's what young people need. I feel for the parents because a lot of them have just been left out of the conversation just because there hasn't been the resources to bring them in or because it hasn't been part of the government's plan to bring them in. So just making sure that that becomes part of it moving forward, I think is a really good step forward for sex ed. I open with the question of what do you wish you'd known from sex education growing up? because every answer tells us something about how RSE can continue to adapt to current times. The updated 2020 RSE guidelines address some of the gaps in school-taught sex ed over the past few decades. But, as we've heard, there's still a long way to go. And with all the misinformation and fear-mongering that can be generated by debates about what should or shouldn't be taught, it's important that young people aren't deprioritized in these conversations by those pursuing a political or moral agenda. School is not the only place where young people learn about sex ed, but schools can act as an essential safe space where students can be pointed to helpful resources, ask questions, and develop critical tools they can use to navigate the world with more agency, more control, more support, and more empathy. What I Wish I'd Known stories serve as a reminder of why a comprehensive and inclusive sex education matters. How evidence-based information and open, non-judgmental discussions about sex, identity, sexual health, relationships, and all the other topics that fall under the RSE umbrella can transform or even save lives. <laughs>